We are pressing on and understanding how change occurs in the Christian life. Um, maybe after this past week, you realize you need to do a little more changing. Uh, hopefully, these lessons will be helpful as we think through the process of sanctification, not only for ourselves, but also if you can get some of these ideas in your mind. Uh, when someone comes to you, a friend, and, and just kind of shares their struggle you'll have a, a little bit of a toolbox uh, to reach into and grab some Bible ideas that can be applied to their struggle to change. So the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the turning process, turning from the lies that we're tempted to believe and turning to the truth. Then we looked at turning from desire that's pulling us away from righteous living and recognizing there must be a stronger desire that kind of overshadows that temptation. This morning, uh, the chapter we want to look at, the author asks the question, what, what really is keeping you from change? And he fields a few answers, but then really wants to get to two major causes for our lack of change. So we want to answer the question, what keeps you from changing? What stops you from changing? Uh, in other words, why do we keep doing the same things over and over again when we say to ourselves after we do them, oh, I, I feel so bad about doing that, or I'm so mad at myself for blowing it again. Uh, I'm going to do better. Well, why don't you do better? What is actually at the root of that continuing sin? And the author, when he fields some answers, he says, oftentimes people say, it's just a lack of discipline. I'm just not a very disciplined person. Well, that may be true at some level, but we would still need to ask the question, well, well, why not? Or is it even really true? Are there some things that you would never let slip? And that's usually true. Um, I even joke at our house that, you know, if we're running late, there, there may be reasons for it, but none of us have ever left home and headed for church or work or something, you know, without your pants on or without your hair brushed. Like, we prioritize certain things. Um, and usually what falls to the end of the priority list is everyone else's time. And, you know, we'll get there late because we had to get this done first. So usually a lack of discipline is, is really a symptom more than... Uh, a root, and so we would want to explore that. The author says people might say, "Well, uh, I just didn't know better." And again, you know, on basic matters of sanctification, usually people do know better. It's not a lack of knowledge. These are people that have been sitting in church for decades who are saying things like, "Well, I just didn't know better," or "I didn't know how to how to get away from it," or "I didn't know how to avoid that temptation." Oftentimes, when people are really desperate, they'll, they'll just say, well, I, there, there's just nobody helping me. And they'll say there was a lack of support or accountability. But frankly, accountability and people have less bearing than we think on the choices we make to, to do right. And so the author says, while there is some truth in those things, discipline is something to strive for. Uh, certainly, an understanding of what God has said, knowledge is important. Support can be helpful. 
But ultimately, it comes down to a love of self and a love of sin that explains why we don't change, why we don't shake off bad habits, why we don't do better this week than we did last week. Again, without like a universal denial of all those other factors, he's saying discipline and knowledge and accountability in and of themselves aren't the key reasons. Those aren't the big pieces. So let's focus on on root issues for why we don't change. And he starts with the love of self, which biblically would be called then pride. And he explores the matter of pride, saying this love of self manifests itself in a self-reliance, a pride, a, a certain level of expectation for what I want to look like before other people. So rather than thinking, what does God want and what pleases him, pride says, what does, what does self want in order to present self in a good way to others? We've mentioned this before. This is why we say things like, oh, I can't believe I, I blew it again. I'm so mad at myself. And that is understandable at some level, but if that's the extent, if that's the depth of our understanding of sin and needing to confess, then really we should bow in confession to self for letting self down and try to move forward. But that won't work. Um, we, we would need to come to the Psalms and understand that our sin is against God. Uh, so clearly, first and foremost, God, that the psalmist would say, despite clearly his sin offending other people and being against other people would say, against you, praying to the Lord, and you only have I sinned. Because true sin offense can only be against the one righteous God who implements the righteous standard. It's not that our sin against others doesn't have real consequence and harm, but but God is the one who establishes the righteous standard. There is the definition of falling short. That's what the psalmist is saying. And so we need to have an antenna up for our own words of pride and self-reliance, lest sin be against my image rather than against the character of God. This is worth exploring, and Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, goes as far as to say it this way, God wants you to walk in obedience not victory. Our problem is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. We are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. Now, I'm not looking to split hairs with somebody who uses the word victory. I, I think we could go to the scriptures and find that word being used in ways that is helpful. So I don't think Jerry Bridges is saying you should never talk about victory. But in the context of change, of of overcoming sin habits, of saying no to temptation, I think Bridges has a good point. If it's just, I want to get victory so that I can have a story of overcoming, 
we, we might just be trying to promote self-image again rather than starting at the place where I have sinned against God. It's not about a trophy, about victory. It's about my offense to God, how I've grieved the Holy Spirit. And I think this is just a reminder at the very least that even in our effort at sanctification, our yielding to the Spirit, our cooperation with all that God's doing in us, even then we will be bombarded with satanic effort to make that effort about us. And so we can at times say, you know, I I just need to be a better leader or I just need to be a better mom. And that's true, but but how is that going to happen? Is it by curbing the behavior that makes you look like not a good mom or not a good leader or not a good church member? Or do we have to go deeper than that and start at the heart? My sin is against God. And if I can deal with that, well, then I'll be at least a more sinless husband or a more sinless mom. But that's more of what we're after, really. Make sure that the words that come out of your mouth of, I want to be a better this or I can do better at that, aren't just for shallow self-reasons, but they're for those deeper, true heart change reasons, a heart change that needs to happen because we've looked at the mirror of God's word and we've seen his character and his demands there. So self-reliance, I can do this or I can do better. Uh, James chapter 4, in the very language of dealing with sin, conflict, temptation, he gives more grace, James writes. Therefore, the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What we see there is really the solution to what we might be feeling when we say, "I, I, I just want to be a better mom or dad or leader or friend or or I don't want to blow it, I, I, I can do better. Well, what we're saying is I want to get to that place where, yes, I'm living in that victory that we're, we're longing for. But read the text here and you find that the path to getting to that good place is something God says he'll take care of. He'll give you that peace that you're everything you need to be as a parent or a spouse or a church member or, or a leader, whatever it is. He'll give you that peace. He'll exalt you. But that's only going to happen when you have given attention to the mourning and the weeping. When you've drawn near to God. When you've submitted yourself to him and resisted the devil. There's this, there's this hard work of being searched and searching self so that we recognize God wants my heart. He wants me to to be concerned about the sin that's encroaching, that's so easily besetting. And when that's my focus, then he says, he'll take care of what you need to feel, whatever that is. Uh, 
Um, Those things melt away when I just recognize, here's what he's asked me to do. Self-reliance needs to be weeded out. Give up on yourself. Um, Don't be this proud one that God opposes and instead receive the grace that comes to those who are humble. Pride, the author goes on to say, manifests itself not only in self-reliance, this this constant maintenance of an outer image, but it also goes a little deeper. We we are guilty of self-justification. We're spiritual enough to recognize that we need to change. And, and, And genuinely spiritual enough. We're not like saying somebody's faking it. Uh, But true believers, uh, by the Spirit, recognize error in their lives. They see the sin. They they can at times uh, recognize clearly, I have not been what I'm supposed to be. Yet, if we're not careful, that that pride in our lives will, will lead us in some way to deny responsibility for that sin. We go all the way back to Genesis 3. And as soon as Adam and Eve disobey God, there's this weight, this burden of sin. Um, We could call it guilt. We can call it shame. Um, That's the consequence of sin. The relationship, the fellowship with God had been broken, and, and they feel this ugly sinfulness, this shame. Uh, the scriptures say that um, in that moment of taking of the, f- the, the forbidden fruit, so in transgressing, transgressing God's command, they even come to this realization of their, of their nakedness. They suddenly feel very much like everyone else will, will, will judge them, will see them differently. So they're covering themselves, they're hiding themselves there in Genesis 3. And immediately, under that weight, there is the justification of sin. And the author mentions three ways of denying their responsibility uh, in an attempt to to make self look good, to preserve self. They'll find some way to deny responsibility. It's not my fault. Uh, The author says, of the three reasons, number one, excusing sin making excuses, and still today, uh, just like Adam and Eve, we want to blame other people for what they've done or haven't done that caused me to respond the way I did. You know, our kids will blame their siblings. He knocked over my Legos. She took my doll, and, and that's why, you know, I hit her with my other toy. And it makes perfect sense to them. I, I had to do it because look what they did. And yet, we as adults, though we can see the folly of the children's reasoning, generally default to it ourselves. And we think, I lost my temper because my kids didn't obey the umpteenth time. Or, you know, well, I may not have been as loving as I should have been, but, you know, if you would know how my wife was behaving. And we think somehow that that means something, like that that's a valid argument for justifying my sin or at least saying I'm not fully responsible because someone else triggered me. Someone else pushed my buttons. And that's just not true. Uh, 
Nowhere in Genesis 3 does God say, oh, that, I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I'm, I am the one who gave you that woman. Uh, that's not how it works. Um, so we need to stop excusing sin, blaming others, and own the responsibility. Uh, change, true change, if that's what you want, then don't go down this path of saying, well, I don't really need to change because I'm not as bad as it looks. You're not going to change. You don't want change at the cost of your own image or reputation. We blame our circumstances for our actions and attitudes. Someone can't believe we did what we did, and we tell them, well, if you had been there and had seen the way things were... No, just recognize that you sinned. We can't blame our upbringing. You know, our family has always talked this way, and maybe it's just a little harsh, but uh, we don't really mean anything by it. Well, if it was unkind, it was unkind. Uh, If the sarcasm hurts somebody, then you need to recognize, you need to figure out how to come into obedience to Ephesians chapter 4, to use words that build up, that don't tear down. We can't blame our experiences. You know, after all I've been through, you know, I feel justified. I, I just had to take a stand or I had to say this. You know, after all, that I, all the ways I've been hurt, okay, but we're really just saying the instinctive sinful nature was right. Like a wounded animal, I just lashed out because I've been hurt. Well, we, we can address your hurt. We're not saying that's unimportant. What we're saying is it is not an excuse for sin. Uh, you can't deny responsibility for your own sin simply because of some wound that you have suffered. We can't blame our biology, our short fuse, our tired you know, condition. We just have a lot of excuses. And while we don't often just say, here's my excuse, we, we, we talk and we talk and we talk. And all of it gets lumped together as just kind of trying to soften the blow. I just don't want to come out squarely and say, I sinned. We might even say, I sinned or I blew it, it's, but because all these things happened. And it's just not taking responsibility, and it's not the path to change. The Proverbs tell us the ones who confess and forsake. In other words, we, we call it what it is, We push it into the light and say, that's not the right response. Forgive me, I need to do better. And we forsake it, and then God says, you find mercy. The hope of change, of of walking in the light and not feeling that angst and that tension because things aren't right. That angst and tension is what Adam and Eve felt when they were hiding from God in the garden. Deal with that completely. You don't want to live with that. You don't want to be ducking behind trees all the time, whether it's your spouse or your kids or the church members or God himself. So we just call it what it is, and we get to that place of God's mercy by not excusing our sin. So denying responsibility comes in the form of excusing sin. Uh, Oh, let me give you one other Jerry Bridges quote, still from his book on holiness. Bridges said we should 
use the language of disobedience rather than defeat. Again, uh, addressing the matter of holiness, I think Bridges is right to, to caution us about the idea of victory and just, you know, I want victory as opposed to really dealing with our sin against God. Similar language here um, when he's urging us to think of and use the language of disobedience rather than just the word defeat. And here's what he says, quote, When I say I am defeated by some sins, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I am saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sins squarely on me. We may, in fact, be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. I think that's helpful thinking. Again, not because defeat is an unbiblical concept, but it doesn't tell the whole story. He's right. You may be defeated, but why? Back that up and figure out how that ground was surrendered, 2 Corinthians 10. Um, how we allowed a stronghold to be built in our home territory, how we didn't war against it and bring every thought captive. Get back to our responsibility so that now we can confess, forsake, and find mercy. Don't settle for defeated when the reality is we were disobedient. Part of the reason I think that can be argued is because if we're just defeated by something else and it doesn't sound like it's my fault, well, somebody has to be held accountable for the defeat. And ultimately, our blame ends up on God's doorstep. It happened in Genesis when it wasn't, yes, we sinned and we took of the fruit. It was the woman, but where did she come from? Created by God to actually be a good help to the man. And yet now, ultimately, the blame is on God because he gave, he created this. This was his problem. And frankly, a lot of our faithless kind of struggle in sanctification, uh, if we don't own responsibility, it will land on someone. And what we ultimately are saying in blaming circumstances, blaming a spouse, blaming the kid's behavior, blaming the bad traffic, whatever we're blaming, we're ultimately blaming God who claims providential rule over all of those circumstances and who has boasted in himself saying, that he was trying to work all those things for your good. So when we say it was the circumstances, we're saying God, who claims to be working all this for good, is actually not doing his job very well. And because it's his fault, you can't blame me for the way I responded. Excusing sin is, is more a way of our speaking and thinking than we may realize. And I think some of that is proven true in our response to James 1. What do we think when we read in Scripture 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. A lot of times, I I think we think that's so elementary, I need not really think on that. Well, of course God doesn't tempt anyone. But I think in our minds we think, God, just like the devil, comes to us and says, hey, do you, do, you, do you really think that's true? Why don't you try this? But that's not, I don't, I don't think that's what James is arguing, that God would actually do that. I think he's arguing against our faulty thinking that we would somehow say, well, it's not my fault that I sinned. And while we wouldn't say, God tempted me, that is the logical conclusion. So what he's stating seems to be like an extreme. Well, well, God tempted me to do it. Well, of course he didn't. And I think, I think we think rightly when we get to the end of that text. Of course we're not going to say God tempted me. We know God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. In other words, we have to come to grips with the fact that if you sinned in this past week, it is because you absolutely wanted to. There was no misstepping, or I didn't see it, or I couldn't help it, or it was my circumstances, or it was God's fault. James is laying it out clearly. It's not God's fault by circumstance, or by the absurdity of a direct enticing you to sin. You sinned because you were drawn away by your own desires. You chose it. And change can begin to happen when you simply recognize that is true. That God is good, and I doubted his goodness and believed a lie, I sinned. But that's a good place to be, not in the sinning, but in recognize after you've sinned, this is the way out, where I take responsibility for it, and now I can find God's mercy. Don't excuse sin. Number two, don't deny our responsibility by minimizing sin. And he gives a couple ways, pure minimizing. Things like, well, it's not that bad. It's just not a big deal. There's the comparison to others. And we'll, we'll do this, just we'll justify our bad attitude because someone else's attitude was really explosively bad. And so now there's this marriage where both people are sinning, and one of them may be more so, but the other justifying, minimizing their part in it because the other person was worse. It's still minimizing our sin. We minimize sin when instead of just looking at it in all of its ugliness, we instead quickly move on to the goodness. Well, let's highlight the goodness. And so we can say, well, well, yes, I, I lost my temper there, but really all week long I've been really working hard at, well, it doesn't really matter what all week long was. That's not the point. And we're not saying you're like a miserable, horrible person with no place in the kingdom of God. We're simply saying, own this sin. 
If you want to change, especially in besetting sin, then we need to get to the root of why we tolerate that sin. It's besetting sin for a reason. Think of the sin you didn't commit this week. And some of those sins you might hardly ever struggle with. You may never struggle with. You may see sins in other people that just aren't your problem. But why do you struggle with your particular sins? Don't underestimate the chosen language of Scripture there that it's a besetting sin. It's a weight that, that holds you back. Let's get to the, to the root of what's going on in our minds. How do our minds need to be renewed so that we aren't excusing sin and we aren't minimizing it? Even by highlighting the goodness that may really be there. I'm glad you did some other things well. I'm glad you were trying to get into the word. I'm glad you, you know, held your tongue in a certain situation. But don't minimize this sin by saying, well, okay, but I was really good the rest of the time. Don't do that. Don't rename our disobedience. I think a little of that is what Bridges was talking about. Don't settle for the language of being defeated by something. Because quite frankly, if you're you're using that as an excuse, that's not even true. Because sin no longer has dominion over us, we're told. So don't rename our disobedience. It's not just a lapse or a slip. You weren't just tired. It's not personality. And certainly don't blame your manner or your sinful ways on a spiritual gift. Uh, You're just a prophet so you can be as rude as you want to be. Um, Nope, don't do that. A lot of ways we might rename what the Bible just calls disobedience. Um, I was listening to a podcast this week, and it was a lot to it, but um, in part it was addressing uh, pastors that sin and how quickly pastors who sin in really bad ways are being, and the word is, replatformed. So they're taking off the platform, the pub, out of the public eye, and, and the language is they just need to come to terms with their brokenness, and then once they've done that, they can be replatformed. And this is, you know, pretty bad stuff. Uh, so this is, you know, affairs with people in the church and things. And the language that they're using to describe it is, coming to grips with their brokenness and, and understanding their frailty. And, and once they've gotten to that, then they can be re-platformed, a word I'd never heard until this week. Um, well, they may be re-platformed, but I, I can assure you, if they're just trying to explore their brokenness, they will not find God's mercy. Um, that's not the path. The path isn't kind of console yourself that you're broken anyway, and get back to your platform, the path is confess, forsake it, and find mercy, hope, real change. But it comes when you recognize your sin against God. We cannot minimize it by calling it something else. Isaiah 66, the Lord says, on this One or this person will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit 
and who trembles at my word. See, the Lord doesn't say the one on whom I will look perfectly keeps the law because he knows we can't. Our perfection, our perfect record of righteousness is Christ's and it's ours by faith in his complete work. That's how we have a standing with God. But for all of our sin in this life and our struggle of sanctification, there is great hope there in the prophet when he says, the Lord himself says, I look at that one, yes, who has sinned, but who has a broken and a contrite heart. He sees that sin as an offense against God. He hates it and he forsakes it and he finds mercy. When he brings himself to lift his humble head back to the gaze of his heavenly father, he sees not an angry scowl and a finger and an I told you so. He sees that father that we read of in Luke 15 running to embrace his repentant son. There's mercy for us when we really want to change. The author's point in this chapter is, do you really want to change? Do you really want to? Because if you haven't, the ball's in your court. We have to stop blaming everything else for our failure and making it sound like it's an impossible task to live righteously. This denies what God has told us about sanctification. We can't excuse sin. We can't minimize it. We can't hide it. Whoever covers his sin will not prosper, Proverbs tells us. That's the beginning of the promise. But whoever confesses and forsakes finds mercy. Everything in us will will want to cover sin in some of those failures. We just don't want anyone to know. We think they won't love us anymore. They won't accept us. They won't forgive us. We think we'll look bad. But it's the lie of the devil to think the very best thing to do right now would be to just cover this up, to just say nothing about it. I'll just do better from now on, and I'll, I'll figure it out. But those are the lies of the devil. We, we say we want to change, but if we're covering sin and not pushing it into the light, exposing it for what it is, then we cannot say with integrity that we want to change. True repentance will not allow anything to stand in the way of getting to mercy. Even reputation, fear of man. The author structured it this way. He says, guilt makes your opinion matter most. Guilt makes your opinion matter most. So living in perpetual guilt, not just spirit conviction, but stewing in guilt rather than pursuing change through repentance. Uh, Guilt makes your opinion matter most. And I would say your opinion being fed by the lies of the devil. You're a mess. You'll never change. You always do this. Oh, sure, resolve to do better. We'll see how long that lasts. Guilt makes your opinion matter most. Shame makes other people's opinions matter most. But repentance makes God's opinion matter most. When we hide our sin, we may appear to be holy to others. But just know that others may think well of you 
But God knows the true story and is opposing you in your pride. You are not finding God's mercy. Those are harsh words in James. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we don't change because we love ourselves. And the second option was we don't change because we love our sin. Which could mean hating the consequence of the sin, but not the sin itself. Think of it. The federal government is always concerned about the national debt, right? These debt limits creep up on us, and they have to decide to just kick the can down the road a little further or something. Yeah, there's a lot of concern about debt, but when was the last time you heard anything about balancing the budget? That was probably back in the Reagan years when they'd even hear a term budget used because the budget doesn't even matter. It's like, we're just going to spend what we want to spend, but oh, we're concerned about debt. Well, that, that would be like us, like we're concerned about the consequence of sin that makes me look bad and causes harm, but do I really want to deal with the sin itself? Be like, you know, I've, I've known people that have gotten pets and maybe they don't like dog hair in their house, or they don't like the smell of the hamster cage. Well, at some point, there's only so much you can do to deal with the dog hair or the smell of the hamster cage before you're down to that kind of one ultimate option, which is get rid of the dog or get rid of the hamsters. You can't have it both ways. You can't not like the consequence, but want to hang on to the sin. At times we say we've been trying to change for years, and yet by that do we mean we, we don't like that dandelion in the yard, and so we pluck the yellow flower and get rid of it, but the leaves and that root just keep producing. They keep growing. We're not dealing with the heart issue. We need to hate the sin, repent of it, see it as an offense against God who is holy and good. This is why the New Testament is not... It's not all gracious and milk toast kind of approach to sin. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount uses the language of amputation for you to reckon with besetting sin. Saying it would be better for you to go into the kingdom with only one eye because you plucked the other one out because of its propensity to sin. Be better to lop off your hand than to keep sitting with it. He says, get serious about this. Would you be willing to radically amputate something in your life, some influence in your life, in order to help you not to sin? And, and we've all been there. We've had people, you know, that are struggling with something, somebody dealing with pornography, and you say, you know what, then, then be done with the internet. Well, I can't do that. I need it for this and this and this. Okay, fine. But hear Jesus' words. Every time you keep going back there, you may just be announcing, I'm not part of the kingdom. I'll take my place in hell as long as I can look at these pictures a little longer. That's the weight of Jesus' words. What do you want? Not what are you doing, but what do you want? Radical amputation. If you're struggling with what people think of you, you have no business as a Christian with any kind of apparatus on your phone that shows you what other people think. 
don't do it. Be done with that nonsense. There are so many opportunities for us to radically amputate the things that are bombarding us with influence. We don't need to watch TV. We don't need to even to see the Chiefs game. If it's a problem, deal with it radically. Because let's face it, we've all heard people who have said, well, I don't have a TV in my house. And we've thought, well, you're a nut. Because <laughs> we think, I got to have the TV. And I have a TV, so I'm not saying the only approach to the Christian life is not having a television. I'm just saying, if we're struggling with some influence that's bombarding us and drawing us into temptation, Scripture says, deal with it in a way that others will perceive as radical. You're a fanatic. You're a nut. Embrace that label for a while. Maybe you can have a TV later. Maybe you can have a smartphone later. But perhaps not now. Radical amputation, a violent approach to besetting sin. In Colossians 3, similar language. The old language is mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Why? Because you're saying in the first verse of chapter 3, I want to seek God, I want to seek the things that are above. Great then put to death the stuff of this life. But we can't have it both ways. We can't say, oh, I'm trying to seek the kingdom, but I'm not trying to deal with radically the influences that are causing me to sin. We have to hate the sin itself, not just the consequences. Romans 13 would speak of starving the sin. Ephesians 6, armoring up and fighting against the devil and his temptations. First Timothy chapter 6, that same fight, that spiritual warfare. Are we approaching sin and temptation far too casually? Because if we are, then when we sin, we're probably too casual about that. And we want to make excuses and deny responsibility because it, it's just not a big deal. That's why the author kind of comes down pretty hard in this chapter, and he says, if you're sinning, it's because you love yourself and you love your sin. And the opposite of that is the first and greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And we can't say we're doing that if we aren't serious about what God says about sin. And the author reminds us that we come back to the cross as the source of our sanctification. And he, and he lists a lot of passages that call us to sanctification, but they're tied to the work of Christ. Ephesians 5, for example. In loving our wives, why, why, why do we do that? Because Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might present it or sanctify it and present it spotless. So there's the change process, but it's connected to the work of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, 
Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. It's the, it's the work of Christ on the cross that is designed to empower our change. Titus 2, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. The design was change. The cause is the work of Christ. So as we gather each week and we celebrate the gospel, this good news that Christ has done for us, what we cannot do for ourselves, we are reminding ourselves, there is the source of my change. Yes, it's the source of my eternal salvation. I know I'll be in heaven because my faith is in Christ. But it's also the source of my power to change now. I love God with all my heart. Second commandment like to it, I, I love my neighbor as myself. And in pursuing that love, I'm rejecting love of self and love of sin. The real lesson is that we would wrestle with the thoughts of the mind. This battle is raging. The devil's temptations against God's truth. And then even my own, my own reasoning and explanation for the sin in my life. How am I explaining that sin? Am I doing it with scripture? Is it seen as an offense against God? I chose not to love God, but to love myself. If I'm seeing it that way, now I'm getting to the root. And I'm seeing that my sin this past week was not caused by circumstance, by people's failures, uh, even by the devil's lies alone. It was, it was my part. I chose to sin. And as ugly as that sounds, and as, as much as we choke on those ideas and words, they are hope. Because God says, the one who finds, sees, realizes that sin, confesses it, says the same thing God says about it, and forsakes it, will find mercy. The author closes by saying, the secret of humility and therefore of change is never to stray far from the cross. Because by the cross we see the ugliness of sin. We see what it costs and are motivated to change. The songwriter said, near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me. If we could live in the shadow of the cross, that wouldn't be a, a dark, dismal thing. That would, be, that would be a hopeful thing. That would be keeping one eye on change and, and my mind anchored to the power for that change. So may God give us victory over sin this week because we choose the worship of God over the worship of self. Heavenly Father, renew our minds by your word. We long for change, we, we really do. But perhaps we, we haven't approached change in a purely biblical manner. We've been a little too 
psychoanalytic or even just humanistic in our approach to change. We've been self-centered rather than God-centered. So show us yourself. As we gaze into the mirror of your word so that we might change, that we might walk away different. And so our desire is that having gathered here this morning around your word and in the mutual encouragement that we receive from one another, that we would press on into this week a little more mature, having changed a little more into the image of Christ, having renewed our minds a little bit more, Help us with these little steps of growth, we pray, so that our lives would bring you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.